Well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to my open air pulpit. It's a beautiful early September morning. So let's make the most of this beautiful start to a September morning. Genesis 35, look at verse 1, please. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God, that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. From chapter 34, Jacob's sons have decided to take the law into their own hands and not just kill one rapist, but his father and his entire village. Along the way, they would clear out everyone and everything. We would make uh, the statement that it was over the top. But go back to what I said some weeks ago, back in the Old Testament, there wasn't a police force, there wasn't an army per se. For the most part, people did that which was right in their own eyes. And yet saying that, allow me to say this, that even though that was the case in each and every person, pre the law, post the law, the knowledge of right and wrong was all around in every single person. So there wasn't any excuse for doing wrong. And that's why the Lord can and will be able to judge people. Because nobody forces saved people or unsaved people to do wrong. Saved people decide to do wrong. And unsaved people do wrong because they're not saved. But nevertheless, it's free will. It's free will before the law. It's free will during the law. And it's free will after the law. God said unto Jacob, 35.1, Arise. Go up to Bethel, meaning house of God, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God. It's time to worship me, Jacob, that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. So I believe Jacob was saved. I believe Isaac was saved. I believe Abraham was saved. They were saved in spite of themselves, not because of themselves, like you are saved in spite of yourself, not because of yourself. I am saved in spite of myself, uh, in spite of myself, not because of myself. If you were to say to me, well, James, you need to have good works and you need to keep up good works. And if you don't have works like all of the time, uh, you'll lose your salvation. Well, let me say this to you. If that was the case, I wouldn't spend five more minutes making videos such as this. <clears throat> trying to uh, serve the Lord. I mean, I know myself, and you should know yourself, but it comes down to this, that many people are in denial. Many people are in denial, and many people like to delude themselves. And they say this, that, well, I'm no longer a sinner. I'm a saint, and as a saint, I can't sin. And you think, what a stupid statement to make. First John says that if we say that... Uh, we haven't sinned, and John is addressing that to save people. We make him, God, a liar. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, so on and so forth. So I don't know why some people kid themselves, delude themselves. And yet at the same time, I think I do know why people are of that opinion. I think it's fair to say that for the most part, they are today's Pharisees. And you think of that guy back in the Gospels who went into the temple 
and he looked around, he saw all sorts of <clears throat> immoral people, and he was bragging to the Lord that he was this great sort of, uh, sort of character, and this tax collector breezes in, or doesn't breeze in, but he walks in, doesn't even look up to heaven, and he beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Lord said, that man went home justified. But the other character, fasting, tithing, very upright, and yet so self-righteous, so sanctimonious. And that's the kind of thing that I think gets up the Lord's nose. But here, God, 35.1, has spoken to Jacob, and he wants Jacob to keep pushing on. Yes, you'll hit difficulties, you'll hit uh, turbulence in your life, you will face trials and tribulations and temptations, but you've got to keep going on. Like I said before, there is no reverse gear. If you are saved, you must keep pushing on. And here, it's imperative that Jacob pushes on. Look at two, please. Then Jacob said unto his household, and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. Jacob was no fool. He knew that his household, and I will suggest that would include his four wives, his sons and his daughter, were still messing around with sin. And we can take this passage and apply it to people today. Save people. People who are saved, covered by the blood, and yet for reasons only known to themselves, are not walking with the Lord. I mean closely walking with the Lord. I mean like denying themselves. I mean like opening their mouths. I mean like doing something for the Lord. And here, Jacob speaks to his household, and he says this, Put away the strange gods that among you, like idols, like rosary beads, like crucifixes, like pictures of your favorite saints, or of Mother Teresa, or of the popes, and be clean like sanctification, and change your garments. There's a great picture there of repentance. Repentance, in a nutshell, is to be sorry for who you are and what you are. Repentance simply means to stop what you're doing and do a complete about turn. Let us arise, verse 3, and go up to Bethel, meaning house of God, like I say, and I will make there an altar unto God. So, a physical altar, but for today, we have spiritual altars. For today, we are a spiritual priesthood. For today, we offer our bodies in a spiritual sense, to the Lord. We abstain from all appearances of evil. We watch what we eat. We exercise as and when we can. We want to be clean internally and also externally. Who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. Very much feeding into 2 Corinthians. And please join me this coming Sunday as I conclude 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The main theme from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is person A being able to comfort person B. Because saved people are going to have to suffer. And some of us will suffer more than others. 
But the point is this, if person A is suffering, person B should make time for person A. If you won't or can't make time for someone who is going through a difficult situation, check yourself out, examine yourself, make sure you are in the faith. Four, and they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. So you've got a group of people, men and women, and I, and I will repeat myself and suggest that this will not only be uh, aimed at his sons, but also his wives and his daughter. But for again, and they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hands. So statues, idols, objects, physical items. And again, if you heard my previous video and the one before that, I made the case that the main sin in scripture, both testaments, is idolatry. First John chapter five, uh, the apostle John <clears throat> made the case that it was imperative for his congregations, say people, to put away idols, not to get caught up in idolatry. That was the main sin for both testaments. But here you got strange gods, which were in the hand being presented, handed over to Jacob, and all the earrings, or excuse me, and all their earrings, which were in their ears. So I think this, I think, number one, it's quite possible that Jacob's sons were wearing the earrings, and yes, somewhat effeminate. I think his wives were wearing the earrings, and I think perhaps his daughter was wearing the earrings as well. Today, that's referred to as a trophy souvenir. You see, back in the Old Testament, back in the ancient world, when one group of people attacked another, they would wipe out everyone, everything, take all the booty, and retain it to show they were victorious and to really rub it in to their uh, victims' faces if they remained such, if they uh, survived such an attack, and other flies are coming. Uh, they wanted them to see that they were top dog. But this also feeds back into 1 Corinthians about men having long hair. And Paul says that men shouldn't have long hair uh, men that have long hair, it's effeminate. It doesn't look particularly natural. Like women who have short hair. Women who have short hair look somewhat butch. Men who have long hair look somewhat effeminate. But you see, for today, that's kind of fashionable. We have this transgender movement uh, taking ground in the UK. And there was a story in the press last week of a couple down in Plymouth, I think it was, who took their son out of a local Anglican school, not a secular school, but a so-called Christian school, because their son was being uh, forced to accept one of his classmates who has started off as a boy becoming a girl. You've got girls dressing as boys, boys dressing as girls, and society thinks that's quite all right. And yet children at a young age know that it's not all right, but to speak out against it is taboo. If you speak out against it, you are uh, attacked. You are criticized and you are given the impression quite clearly that you have the problem, not those who are 
dressing up. Here, I think Jacob's sons and his wives are wearing the earrings. Going back to chapter 34, verses 27 to 29. I mean, they just cleared out the entire place. They took everything and everyone. But here, as a result, they've been contaminated by what they have done. Five, and they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. The terror of God, the terror of the Lord. We must all appear before the judgment seats of the Lord, the terror of the Lord. In the context, say people meeting Jesus one day, and it will be a terrible event. Our works will be judged, not our selves, but our works. And if our works are the real thing, they remain. If they're not, they are burnt up. But that's quite a terrible situation to behold. But here, it's somewhat different. The terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them. The terror of the Lord, or as people say, he put the fear of God into him. And they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So it's clearly supernatural. If you think of Jacob and his 11 sons, that's 12 men. You think of his four wives. You think of his daughter. No more than 20 people. There's no way that 20 people could uh, propel a prolonged assault. And that's why the Lord stepped in to protect them. And on top of that, he put the dread of God. He put the fear of God. He put the terror of God into the hearts of those all around them so that they wouldn't pursue Jacob. Because like I've been saying over the last few weeks from Jacob and his sons would eventually come the Messiah. Six. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel. He and all the people that were with him. So you were told to go. You are told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. If you sit back, if you do nothing, or if you, if you expect someone else to do something for you, you will miss out on a blessing. If you read Acts of the Apostles very carefully, it speaks about Paul going here and going there, doing this and doing that. The same would be true of Peter and John. It's always a blessing to do something. It's always very uh, rewarding to do something, like planning an outreach, like planning a video such as this, like planning our live Sunday morning services, or planning street work, or taking time out to respond to people's emails. A busy saint is a blessed saint, and a busy saint is a fulfilled saint. I think if you have too much time in your hands, it can cause you to go stir crazy. You've got to be busy doing something for the Lord. Seven, and he built there an altar called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. Never once did the Lord forsake Jacob. Never once did the Lord forsake Isaac. Never once did the Lord forsake Abraham. One more time, each of those gentlemen were saved in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. They were saved by believing on a promise. 
We are saved by believing on a person. The person that we have believed on gave the promise, and others, of course, back in the Old Testament. But it's going to be faith alone from start to end. And here, once again, Bethel, house of God, an altar has been mentioned because God wants people to worship him in spirit and in truth. He wants people to take time out of their days to worship him. Excuse the flies and to praise him. We all say we are born again. We all speak about the blood of Christ. We all speak about the scripture, how much we love it. And yet, how real is our faith? I mean, how much time do we really spend in prayer with the Lord, worshipping him in spirit and in truth, crucifying our old natures, picking up our crosses each and every day, denying ourselves, that's a true test of whether or not we are in the faith and also whether or not we are even saved. Eight. <clears throat> but Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak. And the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. It's very interesting to me when I read through scripture that... Certain things we're not told about and other things we are told about. We're not told when Eve died. She's the first woman to be created. And we're not told when she died, I guess because the Lord was still angry with her due to original sin. And on top of that, she could be a good type of the church. The church will never cease to exist. The church has been through everything. It's been through communism and come out the other end. It's been through the Crusades, the Inquisition, and has come out the other side. It's currently going through a prolonged secular assault, and mark my words, it will come out at the other end. But Deborah, uh, being uh, Rebecca's nurse, has died, and Moses wants you to know it. He wants you to know that she's died, and yet he didn't want you to know about Eve dying. And as I say, that's probably a throwback to original sin. And that would probably feed into why the first person to see Christ raised from the dead was a lady, Mary Magdalene. She was the first to see him. And I guess that's a good picture for the Lord removing the stigma of original sin being uh, laid at the feet of a woman. Nine, and God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padanaram and blessed him. So Jacob, along with Isaac, along with Abraham, and a handful of other greats after him, were not only saved by their faith in the one true God, but on a handful of occasions would see the Lord like face to face, would have dreams, about what was coming their way because they were receiving progressive revelations. There wasn't an Old Testament around this time. Prophets, per se, hadn't yet been raised up. Yes, you've got Melchizedek, <coughs> and he was found earlier in Genesis, but apart from Melchizedek, it's an ongoing uh, period of revelations. Ten. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name should not be called any more Jacob, but Israel. 
shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel, meaning prince. So again, a name change in scripture notes a change of station, a change of status, a change of position. Peter gets a name change. Uh, the sons of Zebedee get a name change. Barnabas gets a name change. And in Revelation, the saints of the Lord get a name change. But here the Lord is working with Jacob at his own speed, in his own way. He has been discipling uh, Jacob for a period of time. He's been uh, preparing Jacob for a period of time. He knew that Jacob was a stubborn so-and-so, a very uh, devious so-and-so, a particular uh, type of character who needed to be uh, prepped over a period of time, hence why he went through the Laban incident, hence why he was saddled to four women, and as a result would have 11 sons up until this point and one daughter. And I've spoken about the problem of polygamy and the backlash that comes from such activity. Look at 11, please. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac to thee, I will give it. And to thy seed after thee will I give the land. So you think, Mr. Jacob, that you've had a good blessing. You know, you think life's pretty good. You're pretty wealthy. Uh, you have been able to escape the vengeance, going back to the rape of his daughter. And yet the best is yet to come from this man, a nation, and a company of nations shall be of thee. Kings shall come out of, thy, uh, out of thy loins. So kings out of thy loins, being David, being Solomon, being Josiah, being the Old Testament kings, of course, the good and the bad, incidentally, nations. And ultimately, we are a nation of the Lord. We are Gentiles. And the land, twelve, which I gave Abraham and Isaac to thee, I will give it. And to thy seed after thee will I give the land. So the Lord is the landowner of the entire world. If he wants to give a particular part of the world to a particular people, he can do so. And yes, as we go through the Old Testament, he will use his people, the Jews, to police society. He would use uh, Joshua and his men of war to just eliminate every man, every woman, every child. Somebody once said that war is God's judgment on sin here. War is God's judgment on sin here. Hell is God's judgment on sin hereafter. There's so much truth in that. If you are a student of history and you have taken the time out to study like the Russian Revolution, for example, or the First World War, or the Second World War. Those wars, those conflicts didn't just come out of nowhere. And those conflicts, those wars, saw the death of millions of people. And I would suggest that if it wasn't for footage, video footage, or photographs of those battles, those conflicts, most people living today 
would, uh, would have long forgotten such events. But when they took place, millions of people were massacred. I think of that infamous account in Stalingrad when uh, the war was going against the Germans and Hitler sent, I think, two million men to Russia. And it started off all very positive for Hitler. And he thought this, that down the line, not long now, we will take Moscow, we will uh, arrest Stalin, and once we deal with uh, Russia, we will finish off Britain, finish off the Vatican. In fact, 1944, there were German troops outside the Vatican, and the order had been given to arrest the Pope, and Pius XII uh, signed his resignation, and he said this, that if I am arrested, I am just a former Pope. I'm, no, uh, I'm nobody important any longer. There's no point in being arrested and uh, taken to uh, Berlin. And that would have scarpered Hitler's attempt to take over the Vatican. Yes, he was a Catholic. Of course he was. But at the same time, he wanted to be top dog, like Henry VIII. And yet when Henry VIII died, he got uh, on his knees and according to some accounts, became a Catholic. When Charles II... Uh, was dying, he too became a Catholic. But go back to uh, 1944, I think it was, you've got over a million German troops surrounding uh, Moscow and the war's going against them. They lose that battle, of course, and 900,000 were arrested and marched from the outskirts of Moscow to Siberia. 900,000. And I believe by the early 1950s, long after the war had ended, only 25,000 made it back to Germany. Those people are quickly forgotten, and yet they were someone's son, they were someone's father, they were someone's brother, and the truth be known, they were probably unsaved. Hence why the Lord... <coughs> use that war to deal with sin. But here the Lord is reassuring Jacob because he loves him. And the scripture says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. So if you need reassurance from the Lord, uh, you will get so from the Holy Scripture. 13, and God went up from him in the place where he taught with him. He came down to speak to Jacob. He went back to heaven. Very rare. Today, I would suggest it's unusual, if not unprecedented. I would suggest this, that for today, Almighty God doesn't need to physically appear to anyone at any time because we have the scripture. We have creation. And the scripture says that if a person seeks the Lord, like uh, Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, somebody will be sent to present themselves to someone like, someone like uh, Cornelius to further explain the gospel. 14, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he taught with him, even a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon and poured oil thereon. Oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit, and a stone symbolically pictures the future temple, 
which of course Solomon would build. For today, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul makes the case from 1 Corinthians that if we defile our bodies, Almighty God will destroy us. If we defile our bodies, we can become sick. And that's why it was so uh, unacceptable for saved people to be intoxicated, breaking bread every Sunday morning, because they are filled with the Spirit of the Lord. In fact, the triunity of the Lord lives within such people. And that's why they were being uh, condemned by the Apostle Paul. Nothing to do with the Catholic Mass, nothing to do with the Eucharist, nothing to do with transubstantiation. It's a dangerous fable, it's a blasphemous deceit. A piece of bread doesn't become a literal body. Juice or wine doesn't become blood. I mean, come on, people, wake up. Don't believe such a dangerous and foolish lie. 15. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him Bethel. Again, house of God. Around this time, there's no temple. Around this time, there aren't even tabernacles. Around this time, there is no priesthood. Around this time, there's no scripture. You've got one family. I mean, talk about exclusivity. <laughs> Not two families. One family, like Noah's family. One family traveling from A to B and making mistakes along the way, sinning along the way like you and I and having to deal with their mistakes like uh, 35, 2, 3 and 4, along 5, having to deal, having to repent, having to make amends for our mistakes like if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, aimed at saved people. Not unsaved people, but saved people. And here, they're on their way, they're busy, they're not hanging around, they're not sitting on their hands, they're not feeling sorry for themselves. It would have been very easy for Jacob and his uh, sons to just wallow in the mire, just feel bitter about the way life had treated them. But they're pushing on. Look at 16, please. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. Rachel, as far as I can uh, recall, as of standing here this morning, with the flies buzzing all around me, was the first woman to fall into the trap of idolatry, being the main sin in Scripture again. Eve was the first woman to doubt the word of the Lord. Eve was the first woman to take the devil's word over the Lord's word. Not much has changed. Most people today, when they read the scripture like the King James Bible, and they hit a difficult passage, they start to become unsure. They start to doubt. They start to question. And they many times go to another version, a modern translation, or they will consult Greek manuscripts most of which are online now, and they are faced with a dilemma. The King James says this, the NIV says that. The King James says this, the New King James says that. Vaticanus and Seneticus say this, the TR says that. And they find themselves in a spin. What do I do, they say? Well, how about giving the scripture the benefits of the doubt? Almighty God has given you the benefits of the doubt over many years. He gave Jacob 
Isaac and Abraham the benefits of the doubt. He gave Peter the benefits of the doubt. Peter was cursing. Peter was swearing. Post his salvation concerning Christ's arrest and uh, torture. I mean, if you could have heard uh, Peter swearing and cursing, you would have said yourself, clearly an unsaved man, clearly a false, uh, a false convert. I mean, so pious how some of these people sound. They are very much modern day Pharisees. And yet he was saved. Abraham was saved. And yet he got caught up with the concubines. And, uh, you know, the rest, of course. Isaac was saved. And yet he fell into the sin of favoritism. Jacob was saved, and yet he was a liar, he was a deceiver, he was a schemer, and also guilty of polygamy. This is what fascinates me about Scripture. And I think a lot of people today, especially those in the holiness movements, are out of touch. I think a lot of people today that believe in once saved, you can be lost, don't really understand reality, don't read the Scriptures very often. I mean, sure, they have their favorite passages, which I like to quote, like without holiness, uh, no man will see the Lord. And if we sin willfully, there's no more sacrifice for sin, but a fear for falling away of judgment, so on and so forth. But they neglect other passages, like again, if we say we haven't sinned, if we confess our sins, and they cause people to find themselves in a spin, questioning their salvation. And I'll speak about that during a future message. But here, Rachel is travailing, she's in hard labor, she's about to give birth to her final son, and it's difficult for her. It was a difficult route for her to go from A to B like it would be for Mary to go from A to B. It wasn't easy. It's not easy being a Christian. It's not easy trying to live a sanctified life. It's not easy trying to cut through all of the dross, trying to filter the good from the bad, it's not easy trying to find good teachers online or in your community. It's not easy trying to weigh up the uh, truth from uh, deception. It's not easy. Look at 17. And it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. So she could have died. The child could have died. In fact, it may interest people to know that most um, abortions which take place uh, around the world, legal and illegal, can result in mother and baby dying. But of course, people don't want to discuss that. People think that the woman has a right to kill her child. And yet, like I said last week, and please excuse the flies, uh, society doesn't allow the woman, the victim of an incident of rape or incest to eliminate her attacker. It's an inconsistency. It's not something which you could really understand. But here, Rachel knows it's going to be a tough labor. The midwife wants to reassure her. 18, and it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. <coughs> Benjamin. Benoni or Benoni, like Levi, Levi. And as she was departing, like from here to the next life, <clears throat> and I believe she was saved, her soul 
leaves her body. And I remember reading an account some years ago of a medical study which took place. <clears throat> and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, some doctors were weighing people that were in hospital, that were sick, that were dying. And once they had died, they were weighed again to see if there was any difference in the weight of such people's bodies. And there was a difference because the scripture says that our souls are bodily shaped. So it would appear if you look at parts of uh, the scripture like uh, Revelation 6 or Luke 16, that a soul has eyes, a soul has hands, a soul has a bodily shape, a soul is able to wear clothing. Uh, Revelation chapter 6. So if you are, say, 5 foot 10, there's every chance that your soul, which is eternal, is also 5 foot 10. If you're 5 foot 2, your soul quite possibly will be 5 foot 2. Your soul is invisible, of course, to the human eye, but your soul is inside of you like a football. You see the outside of a football, and if you open up the football, there is an inner tube. Or if you look at a car from the outside, it's just a shell. But if you open the bonnet or the hood, as the Americans call it, or the boot or the trunk, <laughs> as the Americans call it, you can see inside uh, such a vehicle. You can see what the layout looks like. And the same, uh, the same would appear to be true of a person's soul came to pass as her soul was in departing, not a spirit, a soul, for she died that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. This is my beloved son, hear ye him. You will bring forth a child and you will call his name Jesus. And here, uh, Jacob, head of the family, steps in and gives his, gives his son a name change. 19. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And it still is right up until today. If you go to Israel, you can visit uh, Rachel's uh, sepulcher. And there was a lot of pressure a few years ago for Israel to surrender places such as that to the Muslims, to the Palestinians. And that went to the United Nations, and as always, the left-wing, uh, God-hating, Christ-rejecting media put a lot of pressure on Israel to surrender more of her land to the Muslims. But again, Almighty God is the Lord of the entire solar system. He owns the title deeds to the world. If he wants to give a part of the world like the size of Wales to a group of people like the Jews, he can do so. And therefore, a person who is not a Jew has no right to get their dirty hands on the Holy Land. Let that be a lesson to Catholics, Protestants and Muslims. 21. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the Tower of Edar. The switch from Jacob to Israel shouldn't have gone unnoticed. 22, and it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilah, 
his father's concubine. And Israel heard it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. So, number one, if you are a parent, be careful what you do. Be careful what you say around your children. Your children will watch you very carefully. Your children will, or many times, mimic what you say. I caught a video online a few days ago, and I watched the first few minutes, and this kid arrived or popped up on the screen and blasphemed the name of our Lord. And I thought this, that kid has got it from their parent. Kids don't necessarily behave in such a way because they want to. They do so many times because they've heard their parents do it. They hear their parents swearing at home and they swear at school. They hear their parents blaspheming at home and they blaspheme at school. They watch their parents being violent at home and they reenact it at school. And here, Reuben, hardly a child around this time, has gone in and slept with Bilah, his father's concubine. Intercourse, of course. And Israel heard it. One account that I looked at a few days ago just to see uh, how they handled this particular verse suggested this, that this was a third account of incest in scripture. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure if I would suggest or argue it was incest. I know some people think that uh, Ham sodomized uh, Noah. I don't go for that. And some people say, well, because Bela was uh, Jacob's wife, because again, when flesh meets flesh, that's a marriage in scripture, by Reuben sleeping with this woman, he has committed the sin of incest. Perhaps, I don't know. But nevertheless, this woman is a concubine. She was owned by uh, Rachel and Leah. And like I said last time, to create the 12 uh, sons of Jacob, it fell to four women to sleep with Jacob. And Reuben thinks this, well, my father's been pretty busy with uh, his two wives and his two concubines. So that gives him four wives. Why can't I? You know, father can do it. Why can't I? Or mother can have idols. Why can't I? You know, go back to the Rachel incidents uh, with her father. She had a statue of some kind. She had an idol of some kind. She had a rosary bead of some kind. She had a picture of the Pope or Mother Teresa. She had something somewhere on her being. And when her father wanted to find where it was, she uh, lied. And the kids say, well, if mum and dad can do it, why can't I? So you see, the consequences will continue. And that's why it's so important for those of us which are saved to be careful how we operate, what we say around saved people and unsaved people, family, friends, acquaintances, because I guarantee you something, when you get saved, nine times out of 10, your family, many times unsaved and many times remaining unsaved, will like to throw stuff back in your face. And they'll say, well, I remember when you did this, and I remember when you did that. And they like to reopen the old wounds. They like to open the old scars. But here Reuben has gone into his father's concubine and slept with her. I doubt anybody asked whether or not she uh, agreed with such action. We don't even know if these people were even saved. 
We know Abraham was saved. We know that Isaac and Jacob were saved, but we don't know for sure whether or not Jacob's sons were saved. It would be very uh, surprising to find these people not necessarily being in heaven. It was Martin Luther who said, uh, I'll be surprised who is in heaven. I'll be surprised who's not in heaven. And I'll be surprised if I am in heaven. Well, I'll go with him on the first two points. But the third point is a ridiculous statement. You should know if you're saved or not. You shouldn't be guessing or hoping that you're saved. If you're hoping or guessing that you're saved, then I don't think you really understand justification. And I would suggest this, that if you don't know you are saved, then perhaps you're not saved. I mean, either you trust what Christ has done for you or you don't. Either you put your faith in him or you don't. Either you believe in him or you don't. You're either saved or unsaved. 27. And Jacob came unto Isaac his father, unto Mamre, unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And the days of Isaac were an hundred and fourscore years. He's made a good old age. He wasn't cut down when he messed up. And many times people think, well, if I do this or if I do that, after getting saved, I'll be cut down. No, not necessarily. There's every chance the Lord will extend you a period of grace. He will allow you on many, uh, on many occasions to allow your sin to play out. And yes, he may allow you to suffer the consequences of your sin, but he won't just jump in. He won't just cut you down the moment you sin. 29, and Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So the old man has died, saved of course, I believe. His sons have been reconciled for uh, the honor of burying their father, which is a good picture for those of us today who are saved and are holding grudges to get rid of the grudges, bury the grudges. 36.1. Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom? So Esau was a person, of course. Esau becomes a nation. And if you think of that term one more time, Jacob being Israel, have I loved, and Esau being Edom, have I hated, you get some idea as to the true meaning of such a term. The Lord had a love for Israel, of course, and he had a hatred for Edom. On top of that, Muslims believe that Jesus, uh, found in the Quran as Esau, is also pictured here back in the Old Testament. And they get that, of course, from uh, unbelieving Jews. Unbelieving Jews, those that wrote the uh, Talmud especially, not only rejected Jesus Christ, but they saw him as a type of Esau, and as a result, would go on to condemn themselves. I mean, it's bad enough to reject the sinless saviour of the world, but to lump him in with Esau, a dubious character, is absolutely shameful. Look at six. And Esau took his wives, and his sons, and his daughters, and all the persons of his house, and his cattle, and all his beasts, and all his substance, which he had got in the land of Canaan, and went into the country from the face of his brother Jacob. It's interesting to me, and yes, I've just had to switch locations to avoid the flies uh, irritating me any longer, that the Lord was gracious to Esau, 
didn't uh, remove him like straight away. He wouldn't remove Cain straight away. And here Esau has got wives, plural, verse six, a major problem for those back in the Old Testament. Men were hooked on the desire to have trophy wives, as they are referred to today. And from the wives, plural, the trophy wives, would come many children. On top of that, he's got cattle, beasts, and a lot of ground. Seven, for their riches and more than they might dwell together. And the land wherein they were strangers could not bear them because of their cattle. So you got Jacob and co, a large group of people. You got Esau and co, a large group of people like uh, Abraham and Lot. And the Lord again will bless those people. He promised Isaac and uh, Rebekah that Jacob would be a people and Esau would be a people. Both would be blessed, but one would be great, uh, more greatly blessed. One would bring forth the Messiah and one uh, would go on to really make a difference concerning history. Eight, thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Some dispensationalists uh, suggest uh, that um, Edom is code for Rome. Possibly. I don't know. If you think of Revelation 17, it speaks about Holy Mother Church, the uh, great harlot, the abominations of the earth, so on and so forth. And chapter 18 from uh, Revelation speaks about the Lord destroying the great whore on the seven hills. I don't know. But historically, historically Esau was a person that became a nation. Jacob was a person that became a nation. Both were blessed in different ways. Both uh, left their mark in different ways, but one over the other would be the greater. And again, one would go on to produce the Messiah. Look at uh, 37.2, please. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilah and with the sons of Zippah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Joseph, without any doubt whatsoever, is the most typified type of Christ in the Old Testament. Everybody in the Old Testament, especially the good, uh, those in the uh, line of the Messiah, are clear types of the Messiah. But Joseph, I think, is a type of Christ on around 40 accounts. Joseph was a very good man, a godly man, not perfect. Daniel was a very good man, a very godly man, but not perfect. You see, one more time, we can present the good and the great from the Old Testament as being just that, but we don't fall into the pitfall of presenting them as sinless people, like the Muslims would do concerning their so-called prophets. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. So, like uh, Abel, he has an affiliation to livestock. Of course, all of the patriarchs were shepherds, but he's an outside man. On top of that, uh, the lad was with the sons of Bela and with the sons of Zippah, his father's wives. Again, 
although they were concubines, slaves owned by Rachel and Leah, when uh, Jacob uh, slept with them, they became his wives. Colon and Joseph brought unto his father the evil report. So Joseph is the favorite of Jacob, and I'll speak about that shortly. And he's got word that his brothers are up to no good. And we call such a person a grass. <laughs> somebody who grasses somebody else up or a snitch. Three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Because he was a son of his old age, and he had given him, excuse me, and he had made him a coat of many colours. Here we are once again dealing with the problem of favouritism. And if you've got just two children, and you love one more than the other, and you make that clear, you're going to scar your children. I mean forever. And your children will probably grow up to have children, and perhaps will do the same thing to their children and scar their children. But here it says Israel loved Joseph. Uh, and on top of that, he made him a coat of many colors. Now you can suggest the coats of many colors is a picture of imputation. If you go back to Genesis chapter two, three, four, speaks about the Lord killing some animals and giving their skin to cover Adam and Eve, a picture of imputation. The great doctrine of justification. I never tire of uh, speaking about justification by faith. I never tire of speaking about imputation. And unfortunately, that is neglected by many people, many Christians. I would suggest over 90% of Christians around the world either don't understand justification or misunderstand imputation. It could be intentionally, maybe unintentionally, I don't know. But because they don't understand it, they are confused. And because they are confused, on many times or on many occasions, they preach a confused message to people. And I want to discuss that, not today, but during a future message, the dangers of not only preaching another gospel, but the repercussions of doing that. Four. And when his brethren saw that the father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So they knew that Jacob was their father, of course, and that he had a love for all of them. I think we can say that. But on top of that, they knew that Joseph was the blue-eyed boy. Going back to, if you will, God the Father saying to God the Son, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. But of course, concerning that, from uh, Matthew chapter 3, Almighty God only had one begotten son. So he could say that concerning Jesus. But here, Jacob had many sons and at least one daughter. And he's making the mistake that his parents would make. And as a result, his brethren hated him, going back to the Pharisees, hating Jesus. In fact, just last night, I was thinking this, that one of the reasons why people like Caiaphas and Ananias hated Jesus Christ wasn't just because of the miracles that he was doing, wasn't just because of his uh, preaching in the synagogues in and outside of the temple, but one of the reasons why they hated him, I think, was because he was younger than them. I mean, he was 30 when he started his ministry, 33 when he finished his ministry, and I would imagine that Caiaphas was older than uh, 33, 
I would imagine that Ananias was older than uh, 33. And I think they thought to themselves this, who does this man think he is? He hasn't been to our universities. He's not a scholar. And on top of that, he's 20, maybe 30 years younger than the high priest in Israel. Hated him, you see. And here, Joseph, being the youngest of uh, Jacob's sons, is also despised by his brothers. Five. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. Jesus Christ, on many occasions, would say to his brethren, being Jews, of course, and yes, uh, the unbelieving Jews were Jesus's, uh, they were his brethren, absolutely. Jesus had brethren from a physical standpoint and from a spiritual standpoint. He was a literal son of Israel. Caiaphas and Ananias and the others were literal sons of Israel. So Jesus was a son of Israel. They were sons of Israel. The apostles were sons of Israel. Paul was a Jew. Peter was a Jew. Paul wasn't from the tribe of Judah, but he was a Jew. Peter was uh, a Jew, and he wasn't from the tribe of Judah. You don't have to be in the tribe of Judah, incidentally, to be a Jew. In fact, most of the apostles are not in the line or the, they weren't from the uh, tribe of Judah, but they were Jews. Joseph dreamed a dream. Jesus preached here and there. Jesus said that, my father and I are one. And he told it, his brethren, Jesus would preach to his brethren, again, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, and of course to his apostles. And they hated him, organized religion, yet the more. So you can't help but miss the similarities, going back to my statement that Joseph is quite possibly the best type of Christ in the Old Testament. Some have suggested that there are, I think, 150 types concerning uh, Joseph and Jesus. I think for my uh, recent uh, checks, I've counted it around, I've counted it to around 30, 35, no more than 40. Eight, and his brethren said to him, shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him, yet the more for his dreams and for his words. We won't have this man to reign over us. Let his blood be on us and on our children. We have only one king, being Caesar. You can't help but see again the similarities. Joseph was a preacher. Joseph would one day be Lord of the earth via Egypt, being a type of the world, of course. And he was number two in the kingdom. Jesus was number two on the earth under his father's authority. Nine, and he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, behold, I've dreamed a dream more and behold the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. They're now flat on their face in submission to me. What a statement to make. He's 17. His brethren are much older than him. Going back to Jesus being younger than uh, organized religion. And that wasn't bad enough. He's now predicting. He's prophesying. 
that the sun and the moon and the stars would be in submission to him. Eleven stars uh, could be a picture of planets. Also, that is picked up from uh, Revelation chapter 12, I think it is from memory. Ten. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? Son, where have you been? Your father and I, Luke chapter 3, have been out searching for you. And he says to Mary, and yes, it's a rebuke, but didn't you know I'd be here in my father's temple? She had no idea what was going on, and it says she pondered those words. She kept those words in her heart. But she certainly wasn't infallible. Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come and bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? You better believe it. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, everybody, saved and unsaved, you better believe it. 11. And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. As Mary observed the saying of young Jesus, Jacob observes the saying of young Joseph. At first it was a shock. I don't think Jacob thought that one day his son would be Lord of the earth. And again he was in Egypt. He was able to stop the starvation of many, many people. And when Christ returns to rule over the earth in the millennium, those that are saved will also be taken care of. And his brethren envied him, but his father, one more time, observed the saying, jealousy, envy, it's a terrible sin. Cain was envious of Abel. Saul was envious of David. Herod was envious of Jesus. It's a continual theme throughout scripture. Jealousy, envy, favoritism, sins of the flesh. 13. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. God the Father sent God the Son into the world. And here, Jacob, a picture of God the Father, is sending Joseph, a picture of God the Son, on a rescue mission for his brethren. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the right, to become the sons of God. You understand? Christ comes to his own, they reject him. Joseph is on his way to find his brethren. And it's the same kind of thing. 14. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron. And he came to Shechem. Or Shechem. So, Jacob, yes, was guilty of favoritism. Yes, was guilty of polygamy. And yet, at the same time, he is a father, and he is concerned about his children's welfare. Hence why he sends Joseph to see if all is well. 18. 
And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. John chapter 11 speaks about a meeting, a council to decide what to do about Jesus. If you study councils in history, like the Council of uh, Nicaea or Carthage or Trent especially, you can't help but notice every time, especially with Trent, that as a result of such a uh, situation coming together or a meeting taking place, that death will follow. I mean, from Trent came the Jesuits, and the and the uh, and the uh, the Jesuits' uh, whole purpose was number one to put the Reformation into reverse. Number two, destroy the King James Bible, take out the King of England and Parliament, and number three, undermine faith alone. And I believe this: that the Lord will forgive, save people, pretty much anything. Apart from, number one, an attack on faith alone, and number two, an attack on the scripture. And I will discuss that as well at a later date. Even before he came near unto them, 18, they conspired against him to slay him. They wanted to kill him. They didn't want this guy, this 17-year-old teenager, calling the shots declaring that he was going to be their Lord. They thought this, well, we are older than Joseph. I mean, Reuben's the firstborn. If anybody's going to be the boss, it will be Reuben. And the Lord says, no, that's not how it's going to be. Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? 19. And they said one to another, behold, this dreamer cometh. It says over in uh, Mark chapter 3 how... The Lord's extended family thought he was beside himself. They thought he had lost his mind. He was preaching, he was teaching, he was healing. I mean, you would have thought the miracles alone would have been enough to convince everybody. But only a few, only a few believed. Only a few got saved. Acts chapter 1, it speaks about 120 people or around that number in the upper room breaking bread. Worshiping the Lord, not 120,000, but 120. And that's why the truth be known, only a few people will be saved. Behold, this dreamer cometh. They thought the same about Jesus. They thought he was a dreamer. And again, the Jews that wrote the uh, Talmud and the Jews that rejected Jesus, no doubt, centuries later, were able to... Uh, confused Muhammad, if he ever lived, of course, and due, uh, due uh, to his confusion and due to his uh, so-called visions and revelations, when he uh, dictated the Quran to Uthman and others, they would present Jesus as he saw, and they went down the apostate Jewish route. I mean, you talk about confusion, and that's why so many Muslims don't really understand who Jesus Christ is, because they are listening to Jewish oral tradition, not the scripture. But on top of their uh, conspiry or their plan, their 
premeditated attempt to kill him. They want to reverse his prophecy. The devil wants to reverse the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And going back to Eve, he would whisper words of doubt into her ears. He would do so to those in Corinth. I'm currently working through 2 Corinthians. And it would appear to me that one of Paul's main problems dealing with the carnal Christians in Corinth was this character, at least one character, going around slandering Paul. And you can be sure that he was doing so thanks to Satan, putting doubts in the minds of the Corinthians. And here they want to shut Joseph up. They want to disprove his prophecy from uh, 37, 7, 37, 8, 37, 9, 37, 10, going into 37, 11, and 12. They want to disprove what he's told them. 20. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, some evil beast hath devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams. An evil beast, the devil, goes around like a roaring lion. And we will see what will become of his dreams. You call yourself the Son of God? Cast yourself down. Turn these stones into bread. 21. And Reuben heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. Now Reuben comes through here. Reuben is the eldest. And he sees what is going to happen. And he sees which way this could go. And just perhaps he wants to uh, make amends for his uh, incident from 3522. And he wants to rescue Joseph. He wants to perhaps ease his conscience as well. 22. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness. And lay no hand upon him, that he might read him out of their hands, to deliver him to his father again. I think Reuben, again, a complex character, wanted to save his brother, wanted to return him safe and sound to his father. He knew that his father would suffer terribly if news was relayed to him that Joseph was dead and buried. And yet, just a few verses earlier, he's sleeping with his father's concubine. It pictures, surely, the two natures in the believer. That which I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. O wretched man that I am. 23. And it came to pass, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colours that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. They would strip Christ. They would put a cloak on him, a robe. They would put crown of thorns on his head. They would kneel, they would mock him. And here he's lost his coat of many colours, a picture of degrading him, of course, a picture of dethroning him, of course. They put him into a pit. Christ was held in a dungeon all night and probably without water. In fact, he was on the cross, I thirst. And the uh, centurion or one of the guards 
got some vinegar and uh, put it to his mouth. I mean, if you are thirsty, the last thing you want is vinegar. But it's the same kind of thing. 25, and they sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Galad with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. They got no consciences whatsoever. And now I would suggest they are on the brink of treachery. I caught a glimpse, uh, or I caught a video, I should say, uh, this morning of uh, Sean Spicer, Donald Trump's uh, first press secretary. And he was at this event in California. I think it was the Emmys. I'm not sure. And he came on stage with his uh, fake lectern and people looked aghast, looked somewhat bewildered at uh, Spice's arrival. And I knew straight away what was going to happen. He comes on for around a minute and a half and he's mocking his time at the White House. He is making fun of his time at the White House. He has betrayed his former boss. And I thought this, that this must be the first press secretary to do such a thing. There was a guy called uh, Andrew Card who worked for George Bush and he was Bush's uh, chief spin doctor. And like all spin doctors, like all press secretaries, he would go on to uh, resign and go back to the private world, the private sector to make a lot of money. But to the best of my knowledge, I can't remember Andrew Card or Andy Card, as he was known, making fun of George Bush or his time as a White House uh, spokesman. There was a guy called Alistair Campbell who worked for Tony Blair and he was Blair's uh, chief spin doctor for around a decade. And when he left uh, Blair's side, I can't remember him ever mocking uh, Blair or his time at Downing Street. In fact, he made a lot of money off the back of Blair. He's written many books about his time in Downing Street. And no doubt Sean Spicer will make a lot of money. Now he's gone back to the private sector and he will write books about his time as uh, Trump's first press secretary. But I thought it's the same kind of thing that we we're reading about this morning. It's treachery. You don't find people that are on the left going over to the right and making fun of their time working for left-wing leaders. I mean, Obama had some uh, different press secretaries. I think one of his uh, press secretaries was a homosexual. And uh, when he left, he was given uh, the red carpet treatment, welcomed and commended by Obama as something wonderful. You can't imagine him, can you, going to a right-wing uh, dinner party one night to making fun of his time at the White House. On top of that, what also uh, interests me, and I watched Summer Spice's uh, press conferences when he first came on the scene, was how he was able to see through much of the fake news, put a pretty good defense up for the conservative agenda. And no, incidentally, I'm no uh, apologist for Mr. Trump. I am impartial, but nevertheless, it is better, I guess, to have a conservative with a small C compared to a liberal with a capital L calling the shots. And yet, Spicer could see through the fake news. He could see through 
the attacks against his boss and his country, and yet he can't see through Rome. He can't see through the Vatican. He can't see through their shenanigans, their deception. He's blinded to it. And I say that because Sean Spicer is a Roman Catholic. And they sat down to eat bread, 25. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Galid, with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. So it's bad enough that they have thrown their brother into a pit. He must have been terrified. And that wasn't bad enough. They've sat down to enjoy a nice meal. No conscience. And I've watched many uh, programs over the years, and I've read a lot of accounts of uh, serial killers and wicked people over the years that have done some awful things. I mean, terrible things. And within a few minutes of doing some awful, terrible things, I mean like murdering people. I mean like cutting people up. I mean like eating the remains of their victims have gone on to watch a movie, have gone on to enjoy a meal at a restaurant, and have gone on to do other things without a care in the world. And here, his brothers, I would suggest, are very much in the same boat. 26. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? So Judah now wants to intervene. He wants to show clemency to Joseph. And of course, Judah is the uh, forefather of Jesus. Jesus, of course, comes from the tribe of Judah. So Reuben initially steps in, stops his brother's death. And now Judah also wants to do what he can. Excuse me while I get my uh, footing right. He wants to do what he can to save his brother. 27, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh and his brethren were content. So let's get the Gentiles to do our dirty work for us. Going back to the Jews wanting the Romans to crucify Christ. They weren't prepared to do it themselves and yet they wouldn't think twice about murdering Stephen, but the scripture had to be fulfilled how Christ would die. They pierced my hands and my feet. So they see a group of Ishmaelites, Gentiles, tied in with uh, Esau. And if you listen to Muslims, they believe that Ishmael was a descendant of Muhammad. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's get some money out of this. And let not a hand be upon him. We don't want our hands to be tied up or to be guilty of this. We want to find someone else to do this for us, like I say. For he is our brother and our flesh. We can't live with ourselves. And yet those that had Christ crucified had no qualms about doing it. And his brethren were content. The Sanhedrin... The Pharisees, the Sadducees were content. They were content to hand their brother, Jesus, over to the Gentiles, being Herod and Pilate. 28. 
28, and they passed by Midianites, merchant men. And they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20, pe 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt, 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, which I believe was the value of a female slave. So it continues. The treachery continues. Not only have they detained their brother, not only have they stripped their brother of his coat, picturing Christ's imputation, picturing the Jews' desire to stop Christ dying for the sins of the world, to stop Christ purchasing the world through his own blood, to stop Christ dying for the sins of the Jews and the Gentiles. I mean, that's how deep it goes. And the devil was behind that plan to stop Christ going to the cross. And eventually they would put him on the cross, not realizing that by doing so, John chapter 11 he would die for the sins of the whole world. And here, if all that wasn't bad enough, they've come across a group of Ishmaelites, Gentiles, and they have decided to sell Joseph to them for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. So around this time, it's pretty dire. I would imagine Joseph was pretty uh, devastated, didn't know what was going on. He's 17 years old. He knows that one day he will be Lord of the earth, like Jesus Christ would be. And yet here, his faith has been tested. What's going on? He has no idea of knowing how this is going to play out. He knows that if he survives the trip to Egypt, and it's 50-50, whether or not he will, but if he survives the trip to Egypt, what will become of him? He could be uh, beaten to death by his new masters. Twenty-nine, And Reuben returned unto the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. I think, to be fair to Reuben, that's a genuine picture of remorse, a genuine picture of distress. And you could even suggest that's a good picture of the believing Jewish remnant that would later go on to believe on Jesus. And to rent his clothes is a biblical uh, statement concerning absolute grief, despair. 30, and he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I whither shall I go? Where has the child gone? How can I find him? And Christ would say, well, you will one day seek me and not find me, and where I go, you cannot yet come. Thirty-one, and they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent their coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, this have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. Or no. Very cruel. But you see, they want to, on the one hand, punish their father because he had a greater love for Joseph, going back to the sin of favoritism. They wanted to punish him, you see. They wanted to silence his uh, prophecies. 
his dreams, like the Jewish leaders would do concerning Jesus. And at the same time, they have to explain the disappearance of Joseph because they knew that if they couldn't do that, uh, Jacob would hold them responsible because they were his uh, elder brothers. He was their owner. They were his older brothers. 33, and he knew it and said, it is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. Evil beast, Satan is referred to as a beast. Satan indirectly killed Christ on the cross, but directly God the Father killed Christ on the cross. 34, and Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for son many days. He doesn't grieve for his son. He mourns for his son. And yes, there was a difference in his mind. He thought this, well, if my beloved son, my favorite son has died. And around this time, he thinks that is exactly what has happened. He is in a better place now. There's a belief in the afterlife. There is a belief that there's more to the here and now. 35, and all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him, like David and, and, uh, and uh, Absalom. David and Absalom, David was broken over Absalom's death. And here, Jacob is broken over the death or his belief that Joseph has died. He's weeping, he can't be uh, consoled. As far as he is concerned, his world has just come to an end. Back in the 1980s, uh, D. Martin lost uh, one of his uh, sons, and uh, his son that he lost was a famous tennis player. And he was flying from A to B, and the plane went down, crashed, and his son died, and that pretty much finished D. Martin off. For the next five, six years, he died. I think it was uh, 1995. He was a broken man. And those that knew D. Martin said that whenever they met him, the lights had gone out. You know, he was uh, existing, but he wasn't living. His son was his favorite son, the apple of his eye. And yet with the loss of his son, his favorite son, he was broken. And for the next several years, like I say, he was living like a recluse, a broken man. And here it's the same kind of thing. Jacob is broken. He has no idea as to what has happened. And he is weeping and mourning for him like David and Absalom again. 36 on our clothes. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Pontifer, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. So he's made it to Egypt. One day, my mother and my father and my brethren are going to bow down to me. And they say to themselves, what a joke. He's 17. He's wet behind the ears. He has no idea about life. He's not married. He hasn't got a job. He's a dreamer. He's a drifter. And yet it's now coming into play. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good 
to those that love him, to those that are the called according to his purpose. And here the Lord is very much in the driving seat. Yes, he will sit back and he will allow treachery. He will allow perhaps incest. He will allow murder or the potential for murder to take place. And yet, as a result of the behavior of the sons of uh, Jacob, his will will be done like Jesus Christ. He was born, lived and died. And he knew exactly how it's going to go from beginning to end. His apostles, Jewish, of course, had no idea and would also need to be reassured time after time. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, uh, the um, Sadducees and the other leaders in Israel plotted and planned, conspired with the Gentiles, thanks, thanks to Judas Iscariot, another type of the devil, to put Christ to death. The apostles were weeping in the upper room, broken that the Messiah had uh, come and been put to death, could understand what the purpose of it all was, and in spite of their darkest hours, their darkest days, after three days, Christ comes up out of the tomb. He conquers death. And here, Joseph has been sold to Pontifar, an officer of Pharaoh's, he's a Gentile, and captain of the guard. Christ dies for the sins of the world. He comes first of all to the Jews, like I say. They reject him as a people, as a nation. So he turns to the Gentiles. And we are a nation of God. We are a people of God. We are a spiritual priesthood. We are the people of God right now. The Jews as a people, the Jews as a nation are cut off from God for now, for the church age. But once the rapture takes place, Revelation chapter 4, the Lord returns to Israel. And here you got Joseph in Egypt, and he will be there for many years, incidentally. And during his departure, his exile in Egypt for many years, his brethren and his sister and his father and others are going to suffer a famine will come into the land. Also, 35 mentions daughters, plural. And I think the term for daughters, plural, is probably in reference to the wives of Jacob's sons. Going back to what Laban said to uh, uh, Jacob, your sons are my sons, uh, your family is my family. Very much lost in today's world, and yet I'm told when two Chinese people get married. The wife doesn't just marry the Chinese man, she marries his family and his family become her family. She has been incorporated into that Chinese unit. It could be similar, I guess, if you look at an Italian uh, wedding back in the day, but for today, most people that get married don't marry their future wives family or their future husband's family. But back in the Old Testament, a marriage brought a whole community together. And that may explain partly why Solomon 
married so many women. I mean, yes, it started off with a physical attraction, but also in his mind, he thought, well, if I can marry all of these women, I can increase my kingdom. I can uh, give Jehovah glory. I mean, I think Solomon started off with good intentions, but down the way, it caused a lot of problems. And I think the worst part of it for Solomon was the idolatry. Going back to my earlier statement that the Lord can overlook the sins of his saints, but when it comes to the rejection of faith alone, Paul says that that a curse will follow anybody who preaches another gospel outside of faith alone. And if it concerns the adding of scripture or the subtracting from scripture, Revelation 22, your name comes out to the book of life. So that would appear to me to be the two main sins that the Lord will not overlook when a saint commits such things. Idolatry as well. Going back to such a sin being the main sin in scripture. So I think I will start to wrap up and uh, just say a few things. And yes, I had to switch the camera as I explained earlier due to the flies. Uh, but you know me, if I start something, I want to finish it. I love Genesis. I love the Bible. I make no apologies for that. And I want to look at how the Lord's people lived, how they operated uh, before they were saved and after they were saved. It's much better for those of us which are saved to do this. We don't want to allow unsaved people to get their dirty hands on the Holy Bible and just rip it to shreds and attack the good and the great and suggest that there's no uh, right or wrong, that it's all subjective. Let's do it ourselves. Let's read the scripture ourselves and let's look at why these people did what they did. This is still the best book in the world. In fact, there was an explorer who was coming to the end of his life and he had accumulated hundreds, if not thousands of books. And as he was getting sick, he said to his uh, servant, get me the book. And the servant said to him, but sir, which book do you want? You've got thousands of books. And he said, get me the book, you fool. And of course, he knew what he meant. He meant the book, the Bible. And that great explorer started to read the scripture and got a lot of comfort. There was a story. It may not be completely uh, correct, but there was a story about Charles Darwin when he got up in years and he was not far from death. And somebody went to visit him and he was found reading the book of Hebrews. And if you put that account to Darwinists, they go crazy. And they say it's not true. It's a false story. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's true or not. I know when I first heard it, I was somewhat skeptical. And I looked online, did a bit of research. And I couldn't be overly sure if it was true or not. But why not give it you know, the benefit of the doubt? Why not let, uh, let it stand? Maybe it is a true story of Charles Darwin at the end of his life, reading the scripture. Why not? This is still the best book in the world. This is still the most sold book in the world. This book can save a soul. This book can transform a soul. This book can heal you. This book can hurt you. This book can cut you. And this book can console you. But you've seen one family, no more than 20 people, able to escape 
a mob of uh, vigilantes desiring to get vengeance on the massacre of their people. The Lord sees how this could go and he puts the fear of God into those that were chasing Jacob and co. They arrive safely to uh, their future destination. Rachel goes on to give birth to Benjamin, the 12th and final son born to Jacob, her second and final son. She dies. Uh, Reuben goes into one of his father's concubines, sleeps with her, and would go on later to lose his birthright as a result of that. Just because you are saved doesn't mean that there won't be, further, there won't be uh, future repercussions for what you do. And it's not just physical sins, it's like internal sins. Don't fall into the trap of saying, well, I haven't done this or I haven't done that, so somehow I'm all good with the Lord. No, he looks on your heart. He looks on your heart, he looks at your heart. He looks at what's going on inside of you. He looks at your motives. And when he looks at your motives, that's when it really gets very interesting. It's not just what you do externally, it's what you do internally. But many times people can't see what's going on internally. They can see what goes on externally, but they can't see what's going on internally. And the Lord does, and he will deal with that as he sees fit. Isaac eventually dies, uh, 35, 27 to 29. Esau and Jacob come together. They bury him. That's a very common uh, custom and theme found throughout scripture. Many uh, estranged uh, brothers come together for the good of their uh, late father. Esau becomes Edom, a nation, feeding back to Jacob, being Israel have I loved, Esau being Edom have I hated. Not in reference to the two boys per se. Not in reference to the twins per se. Yes, of course, the Lord knew that Esau would do this and Jacob would do that, but that's not how this works. The Bible says that God is no respecter of persons, but peoples, nations, yes, perhaps, going back to that whore that sits on the seven hills, the mother of harlots, and she's earmarked out for destruction, Revelation 18, 4, and beyond. Uh, 36, 1, 2, pretty much down to the last verse from chapter 36, gives a very detailed uh, genealogy of Esau, which again feeds back to the great white throne judgment. The Lord sees everything, records everything, and if your name is not found in the book of life, it means you're not saved, and off you go into the lake of fire. He sees everything, he remembers everything. 37, 2, uh, down to probably the last verse of that chapter gives us a very detailed account of Joseph, a young man, uh, being shown visions and prophecies about one day being the saviour of the world, a very vivid uh, Similarity to Jesus Christ, of course. At first, his family reject it. They don't follow themselves to receive 
the news, they kick against it like the leaders in Israel would do when Jesus first arrived. They would send messages, uh, messengers to John the Baptist to find out who he was. And he would deal with them accordingly. And then Christ arrived and would start his ministry. And they would clash with him. And you know the rest, most of uh, those from Jerusalem would reject Jesus along with John the Baptist. But Joseph, not necessarily knowing how this is all going to play out, goes out by faith, the just shall live by faith, uh, falls foul of his brethren, suffers terribly as a result, is detained, stripped of his clothing, again picturing the desire indirectly from the devil to stop Christ offering imputation, salvation for the world, and yet Joseph was just where the Lord wanted him. Jesus was just where the Lord wanted him. From the standpoints of the apostles and perhaps Reuben and Judah, they thought it's pretty bad for Joseph, it's pretty bad for Jesus. There's no way back from this, and yet the best was yet to come. Joseph would come through, Jesus would come through. Also, the Gentile uh, element can't be missed. Joseph is uh, well received by the Gentiles. The Gentiles today uh, receive the Jewish Messiah and are saved. Most people today in the body of Christ are Gentiles. Most people that are saved today love this Jewish book written by Jewish men. First and foremost to the Jews and then vicariously to the church. And of course the world, if they will take the time to read it. Joseph is sold to Gentiles. Judas would betray Jesus uh, first and foremost to his own people for 30 pieces of silver and here concerning Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Reuben and Judah try to delay it like uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would try to stop it, try to reverse it, but it was too late. The Jewish government decided to put Jesus to death and here the Jewish government under the uh, covering, shall we say, of uh, Joseph's uh, brothers have decided to betray him. They've decided to sell him on. And Reuben couldn't stop it. Jacob, excuse me, Reuben couldn't stop it. Uh, Judah couldn't stop it. Nicodemus couldn't stop it. And uh, Joseph of Arimathea couldn't stop it as well. But at this time, everything is still on track. It's going to be a difficult uh, time for Joseph. Pain would come to Jacob, but that pain is partly Jacob's fault. Jacob was wrong. He was wrong to broadcast his uh, love for Joseph. He was wrong to let his other sons know that Joseph was his uh, favorite son. So there's a double-edged sword to this, like the scripture. It can heal and it can hurt. And I think what starts off with the sons getting back at their father is also... Uh, a picture of the Jews rejecting Jesus and doing so to get back at God, the Father. I mean, this book is so deep, and I'm just scratching the surface of it this morning. When news reaches uh, Jacob that his son has been uh, 
initially put to death. That's what he has been told. He tears his clothes. When God the Father sees God the Son on the cross, uh, the uh, veil in the temple is ripped. Picture of grief, picture of distress. An earthquake uh, occurs. Many people die. That's a picture of God the Father suffering grief at not just his son dying, but his only begotten son becoming a sin offering. And here Jacob's grief is a picture of God the Father's grief when uh, news reaches heaven concerning Jesus' death on a cross. He mourns 34, 35 for a period of time. His other sons and daughters are unable to comfort him. You might possibly, perhaps, be able to suggest that the angels in heaven tried to comfort God the Father, but I won't teach that as necessarily being uh, scripturally uh, correct, but it's a theory. It's a suggestion that perhaps the Lord's angelic hosts in heaven wanted to comfort him. Uh, Jacob mourns, doesn't grieve. He knows that there is life after death, like I say, and one day he will be reunited with his son, which is a great picture for us. If we lose a loved one, if they are saved, we shouldn't be grieving. There was an account of a lady who lost her child, and the child was very young, and uh, she took it very badly. And after the funeral took place, her friends and family went home, and she remained at the graveside, crying her heart out, churning herself up, really feeling bad about it. Some people said, let her be, she'll come round in time, let her heal. Two or three days went by, and she was seen day and night by the uh, burial spots of her dead child. And on one occasion, she climbed over the fence to get to where her child had been buried. It was 11 p.m. And she was seen to be digging up her dead baby with her own hands to get close to her child. She couldn't bear the thoughts of her child no longer being with her. That's a terrible picture, a terrible picture of grief, real grief, not mourning, unlike the sisters of Lazarus that would mourn. This woman was grieving, intense grieving, so much so that she attempted, she attempted to dig with her own hands up the body of her child and somebody had to stop her before she went too far. Jacob takes it very badly, he's devastated, probably doesn't eat for a period of time, goes through a period of depression, despair, but not is all lost, 36, because Joseph has been sold to Pontifar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard, he's a Gentile. So a Jewish man has been sold by Jews to a Gentile. I mean, that's treachery. I mean, that's a terrible picture of betrayal. It's bad enough they didn't want him. It's bad enough they were planning to kill him. And when they couldn't bring themselves to do that, they decided to sell him for 20 pieces of silver to Gentiles. And he would have finally 
he finally arrived in uh, Egypt, a type of the world, and he would become the prime minister of Egypt. He was lord over Egypt, lord over the earth, if you will. Com uh, compare that to the Messiah, lord over the earth. Ruling from Jerusalem, of course, but lord over the whole earth. Whereas, well, no. Whereas at the moment, he's not lord over the whole earth. At the moment, we are living in a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God. But when he comes back, he comes back with the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of heaven will be for the Jews and the kingdom of God will be for the Gentiles. We get new Jerusalem. The Jews, uh, the Jews get the new earth. New earth for the Jews, new Jerusalem for the Gentiles, for the church. And I will leave it there before my uh, uh, voice completely gives out. And next time, pick it up from 38 onwards. The Lord bless you all and Maranatha.